listening to episode 255 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we conclude our look at Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. And, you know, kind of sad to not have it to talk about anymore, but yeah, that's not quite true and we'll explain that probably next week what we were just talking about so there's probably a little bit more dollhouse discussion to come yeah a little bit more but yeah you're right i mean it's you know when when the series is kind of cut down in this prime like this there's always um you know a sense of what could have been and certainly an episode like this um where you know it is a great hour of television in of itself but there are aspects where you say well that happened rather quickly you know and of course there's no choice right they sure you know fox said well, you're done uh you got uh, 13 episodes so let's wrap it up you know they just kind of have to do it the way to do it and uh so you know like uh, you know especially with um genre television where they can go anywhere you know it's it's sad to to see it have to end in an untimely fashion, but that also is the nature of the biz, I guess, right? Yep. So now, in terms of a little bit of housekeeping, next week we're going to take a look at the pilot episode of NBC's Reverie, which is a Mickey Fisher creation. And if you know the name Mickey Fisher, it's probably attached to Extant, which was a, a show that Michael and I podcasted about a couple years ago. So. If you haven't seen Reverie yet, make sure you check it out and then tune into the podcast next week. Right. All right. As always, uh, send us emails to sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. You can go to the website, leave us a voicemail using the leave voicemail tab, record your own audio clip. If you want, send us the MP3, tweet us at sci-fi TV rewatch and consider joining the Facebook group and get into the discussions there. All right. Now, we weren't going to do a tip of the week, but you got something you want to just, just throw out I there briefly. Got to talk very briefly about the <clears throat> season finale of Westworld. I'm not going to spoil anything. I promise my mind is still kind of reeling after watching it. I'm still like, I got to go back. I'm probably, I feel like I have to watch this maybe two or three more times to try and figure out what the heck is happening. What's going on. I'm so confused. Um, which is good. Like it's rarely a show just surprises the crap out of you the way that show does and the, the twists and turns it takes. And for me, basically this whole season saying what on earth is going on. It's just, uh, it's, it's really an amazing show and very well crafted. And, uh, you know, like, I'm just like, for those of you who, who saw the, uh, the finale, you know what I'm talking about and your minds are probably equally reeling unless you've gone back and watched it two or three times, and now you have a pretty solid hold on what the heck is going on. I have only seen it the one time, and I, right now at this point, I do not have a solid hold, but it was incroyable. All right. Now, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I have started watching Westworld. I'm four episodes in, and the confusion to which you refer is already there and and of course it it started at the end of season one and in fact i had to go in and read a few things and a lot of the websites including den of geek have articles that explain the different timelines and try to give you some clue but the fact is there's so darn many of them and i'm not sure what you're talking about yet and and obviously you're not going to spoil it but 
Right. Well, it was like I was pretty well following. Like I pretty much had things in order until like the. It's actually this scene that's after the credits of the last episode. So some people might have literally turned off the show and not seen the the scene after the credits, which you have to see the scene after the credits uh, because that just takes everything, throws it out the window. Flushes it down the toilet, whatever. Like it just completely turns everything upside down, basically. Cool. All right. Well, let's get to Dollhouse. And one of the reasons we decided to go light on the tip of the week is there's so much to talk about. And Lots this is, of course, episode here. 13 of season two, Epitaph 2 Return, written by Marissa Tancherone and Jed Whedon and Andrew Chambliss directed by David Solomon, and this is his sixth episode, including Epitaph 1. It aired January 29th, 2010. Now, we've got some guest stars, one of which is the character Kilo, who was one of Anthony's tech heads, and, and Marissa Tancherone plays Kilo. And, yeah, I and thought you said you didn't look at IMDb. Oh, well, that's the only one I noticed. I, I, I don't know any other ones. Oh, okay. And, you know, she's the character that's fascinated with Echo and Mag may or may not have a crush on her, depending uh, on whether or not you believe Zone. She does. Yeah, it seems like she yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there somebody else you want to bring up? Yes. The guy playing uh, Clive Ambrose is uh, Elijah Dusku's older brother. Oh, okay. Uh, the guy in the on. fat suit. Nope. The other guy. Oh, the other guy. Okay. And the, I don't think the dude was in the fat suit, buddy. Okay, because I know her brother is not fat. That's why I said fat suit. I've right. seen pictures of her brother. Yeah, Nate, Nate Dushku. Oh, okay. Who plays the the other the other baddie? So yeah. Okay. Cool. And then, well, I, just like just like a little side, because then I really got confused because you know Clive Ambrose, and then we had Clyde, who was in the attic. So my question was, which of those two guys was? in whiskey's body in the last episode see i thought it was clyde but now i'm thinking it might have been clive no it was clyde it was clyde with a d, with a d. yep exactly who was in the attic okay yep. Yep. that was what was once i saw it, it was like clive and clive. i'm like oh dear i might there might be something. yeah okay all right cool that's all i want to know all right now just as a quick primer because we haven't really heard about these uh, labels except in the epitaph episodes that is the dumb show who is an individual that's been wiped but doesn't have any active architecture right. so they literally can't speak barely can fend for themselves at all the dolls, mr right? miller uh, we were introduced to back in epitaph one right. then of course there's the actual someone who's never been imprinted and in this episode the only actuals are mag zone adele and little tony and topher of the and topher right exactly well right right he he imprinted some he imprinted uh, victor that's right yeah. yes and topher and then there are the butchers yeah deliberate imprints meant to kill all the remaining actuals and they become bloodthirsty violent very zombie like to a certain extent eventually they resort to cannibalism so it's something that you know we have only heard about in the two epitaph episodes, but 
they do play a, an important part in this one. Right, because they don't really spend the time. Like in Epitaph 1, they kind of took the time to walk you through the vocab, but they don't really do that this time. But you, I mean, you get it. You figure it out uh, eventually, but um, but they kind of walked us through it in the, in the uh, first one. Right. So one of the things we get a little bit of a handle on, unlike Westworld, <laughs> is the timeline. Epitaph 1 takes place in 2019, nine years after The Hollow Men, or so it would seem. And then Epitaph 2 takes place in 2020, one year after Mag, Zone, and Little Caroline initially find the dollhouse. And now, of course, the fact that they have to return there becomes a point of contention, particularly for Zone. Not as much for Little Caroline and Mag, but so they're about a year apart. And 10 years after The Hollow Men. All right, the now times the have other, changed a little bit since then. Yeah, yes, they have. Now, the other interesting thing is that we have Caroline, a.k.a. Tiny Messiah. What a great nickname. <laughs> and Echo coexist and are aware of who the other actually is. I, I, I love that fact. And at first, we're not sure whether or not they both know. And the subtle way that we learned that they do, I thought, was was brilliant. Did you notice the gray streak in Echo's hair? Yeah, I did. Yeah. It, it's significant? I mean, other than the fact that she's 10 years older? Yeah, I, I think probably a little bit just shows she's older, but also that she's undergone significant stress in the okay. last 10 years. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. And... The other thing I was wondering, after the pulse, Topher's pulse, that is, is Caroline gone for good? Right. Yeah. Well, I think she sacrificed herself, right? Right. I mean, other than the aspects of Caroline that are in Echo. Correct. Coexisting with all all the other personalities. Right. So, uh, yeah, but I like that, that I think we're pretty certain that Caroline, as the original Caroline, is no more. She's, she's gone. She's gone. Right, she's gone. Okay. Though probably now, still on the wedge in the dollhouse, right? Well, one would think. What do you think about the resistance movement and crediting Anthony and Priya for having started it? I mean, we don't get a lot of concrete evidence that that is in fact true, but Joss has... I, I, I ran across a few comments he made that he seems to you know, basically support that contention that, that it's fair and reasonable to credit them. And, and we'll talk a little bit about some things that she says that I don't agree with. In fact, I, I feel she's not giving herself enough credit in terms of her role here. But I, I find that fascinating because the two of them really in their own way are at the heart of this resistance movement, albeit in, in completely different ways. Right. And, you know, I, I like what you what we see is like kind of like what we historically have, have seen is that a lot of revolutions, one of the first things to happen is they splinter, right? And that's totally what's happened with this resistance group is that they've developed two different philosophies and, you know, the victor representing the hardliners and uh, Priya representing the, I don't know, the opposite <laughs> viewpoint of that. Yeah. Now, I'm probably going to misuse the word I'm about to throw out there, and that's genocide, which is usually applied 
when one side or the other wants to eliminate a race of people. But here, it seems whoever's behind this genocide wants to wipe out the human race. And my question is, who's behind it? Well, you know, it it seems like, you know, Rossum obviously got this ball rolling. And they, of course, accuse um, Caroline of allowing it to get out of control. Harding suggests that if she hadn't taken out Rossum, that they could have controlled the tech getting out, which is probably a, a load of BS, right? Um, sure. So it just seems like like literally Pandora's box has been opened and there's no one really behind this. This isn't something even Rossum wanted to happen. So Harding and Ambrose are just, you know, staying alive as best they can. Right now, I can't remember who says it, but I think there are some little tidbits that it may be China that has acquired mass imprinting technology. And again, we don't go any further than that. So we wonder whether or not it's you know the Chinese. I mean, we don't understand yet or know how pervasive this really is. Is it as Topher says, half the world, or is that merely hyperbole on his end? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point because they do mention, like, yeah, an outside force. They right that, right. that, that, that happened. So, but it's, it just still seems like, like the whole thing's just out of control. Right. And, and I mean, you mentioned Rossum, and it's like the remnants of Rossum are holding on, and probably they assume they'll rise from the ashes. And eventually make it to the top of the heap once again. Yeah. Because that's their mindset, which is frightening in and of itself. Right, well, now, as obnoxious as Rossum has been throughout this whole thing, and Harding being the absolute, even I think even more obnoxious than Boyd, or more evil than Boyd, as far as like a slimy corporate executive who cares nothing about anything. I mean, we know... Uh, the guy who was abusing Priya, he just basically wrote that off, right? Like he didn't care. Sure. And so here he is with a cigar, eating and drinking, having living the hedonistic lifestyle, and just like, yeah, what? I don't care. Shoot me. I'm backed up. Just get another body. NBD, you know? It's just like makes him even more of an a-hole than like he was even before, right? Absolutely. And I'm just so glad that despite knowing that she puts a bullet in his forehead anyway. Yeah. So. Now you mentioned the ending of Westworld. And, and again, if you go online, you couldn't help but notice the headlines related to that. And, and fortunately I didn't read any spoilery headlines, but the series ending of Dollhouse provides hope temporary though it may be and i'll explain what i mean by that a little later in the podcast because we don't know how far-reaching topher's cure ends up being or whether the bad guys aka rossum still possess technology to start over so while it, it certainly is a hopeful ending 
we don't want to go all in just quite yet, you know? Right, right. And, and, and that's what I love about this ending as well, because we know Safe Haven still exists, but the newly woken individuals are going to struggle to find food and shelter right off the bat. So, sure. uh, hey, everything is great, but now what? Yeah. I mean, civilization's been down for 10 years. Yeah. Well, maybe they imprinted you know some people to keep the McDonald's running or something. I don't know. Well, but you got to get the beef and you got... Yeah, I right. mean, there's so many no, aspects right, right. of it. Yeah, well, well and, and, we find out that the uh, butchers have resu- resulted, re- resort, sorry, resorted to cannibalism in order to survive, right? So, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. There's no food out there right and it sounds like adele even knows that because she says you say another word and we'll add tongue to your dinner (laughs) but uh, you wonder whether this is actually a precursor to another apocalypse that it seems hopeful it seems optimistic but it it may be brief it's like where revolutions picks up at this point right ah nice (laughs) yes now the other question I think we have to ask, and we're going to look at it in, in more detail during the course of the podcast as well, does Topher have to sacrifice himself? Is there another way, or has his character done too much and suffered too much to make it impossible for him to move forward? And that question alone, I think, is perhaps the most fascinating of this episode. Yeah. To me, anyway. No, I, I, well, I don't know if it is... Because there's a lot of fascinating things to talk about in in this episode, for sure. Is Topher's sacrificing of himself poetic? Yes. You know, realistic? No, because you think if Topher could build this bomb, you think he put could put a timer on there exactly. that would give him like maybe you know five minutes to you know get downstairs or something before the thing went off. But I, I get it story wise as. You know, there's got to be a consequence, I guess, you know, like Topher. Yes, we liked him as a character. He was fun, but he did bring this about. He didn't mean for this to happen, but it is basically it's his responsibility. What has happened to the world? Because he's the one who invented this tech. He's the one who caused, you know, not purposefully, but caused it to get out. And And so his his need to. You know, to it, it provides closure for him as well, I guess. Though, you know, there could be things he could do, probably, to keep on living, to do good, to make up for as well, though, right? Well, the fascinating thing as well, when Adele finds out that there needs to be an explosion and she puts two and two together, she doesn't bring up what you just brought up can't you set a timer Topher? it's almost as if she acknowledges the fact that he has to do it this way now is it a narrative device well of course i mean he's a brilliant guy although he he certainly at this point is emotionally uh, fractured he's able to put his scientific mind together enough to put this pulse bomb but but we'll get to that in a few minutes. So the episode opens. It's 2020, somewhere near the California-Nevada border. And we hear about a blanket signal as to, well, why are the locals suddenly butchers? You know, aren't they so far away from the cities that 
they really shouldn't have been able to get that far. And we don't really know whether there were multiple signals or was there only the big one. I guess it doesn't matter, but when we try to you know piece together whether or not Topher's using hyperbole when he says half the world has been wiped, I mean, we don't know whether that's right. true or not. Yeah, Which yeah, we, we also don't get then, actual figures on that one. Well, and it also then leads to the question, well, if there is half of the world that is still intact, what are they doing to help the other half? Yeah, you know? stayed away from America, apparently. <laughs> right. Now, little Caroline, you know, right after the zombies attack and Zone's pretty freaked out as you know you you would expect he would be she says we're lost but we are not gone and and i think certainly she's talking about the human race and that what they're really doing are taking those first steps to bringing the human race back and and you know she tells them as they're heading to safe haven that you know this is a place that apparently is devoid of the imprinted and it's a place for humanity to get started again. Right. So. And, and they have the, you know, we've seen this in loads of other movies and shows where, you know, we have like the tending to the little garden out front trying to grow. Like even in The Walking Dead goes here, um, sitting down at the big family table, um, you know, kind of tropes now of like, you know, people trying to hang on in a post-apocalyptic world and, you know, kind of getting back to nature and, and the things like that. I mean, just retaining whatever shred of humanity that you can retain so that we can get back to, you know, that point once again. And, and yeah, I, I guess on the one hand, you're right. It is a trope. But on the other hand, the family sitting down to a meal together I think is really powerful and, and sure. it certainly is here as well. Now the first story we'll take a look at is the one of echo Paul and the return to the dollhouse. And of course, returning to the dollhouse is not something that most of the members of this group really had at the top of their to-do list. But initially they find themselves captured and imprisoned in Neuropolis, the city of mines we find out it used to be Tucson and it's like, well, why did you bring us so close to the Rossum headquarters? And, and, you know, you mentioned Ambrose and Harding now in different yeah. or bodies. As, as zone says safe haven is parked right near the freaking death star. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, now right away we see the little lineup because Harding's told that, you know, he's got a new body. I think he says you, you, you we have a new suit for you, which we later learn is is uh, code for a body. But then we see that one of them is Ballard. Again, it's been so long since I saw this episode, and we know that Ballard is, for all intents and purposes now, a doll. I mean, he's been imprinted, albeit with his own uh, consciousness. But I, I love it because, of course, <laughs> we see that little smirk on his face. Yeah. As he, you know, goes in and and takes them out, he and Echo are working together. She frees the prisoners, one of whom is her. And I'm sure there's 
some deep rooted symbolism there of her freeing herself, but the uh, oh sure. Well, I don't think it's that deep. I mean, like you said, it's pretty obvious and everything. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of neat though because, like, just as the kid, she sees Bowden, she whispers like Paul. You know, like she's just like so enthralled to just see him, and then to to watch her. You, you see the her as a kid watching Echo you know, beat up all the baddies and she's just like kind of enthralled by that as well. So it's kind of cool, that scene. Yeah, it's very cool. And then, you know, we mentioned a second ago, the idyllic farmhouse and that scene of Adele gardening as a young boy comes up and talks to her and we learn it's Priya's son, T, which we immediately assume is short for Anthony and Tony. And then they're inside a dinner and that's I when thought the group- it, it might have been, I was going to say pterodactyl, but that starts with a oh. P. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, the group startled when Echo and her group come in after a difficult journey. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. And she tells Adele that she has Topher, but he's in bad shape. Nonetheless, Adele's pleased that he's been rescued. And we see a lot of their relationship and just this, this mothering mm-hmm. that, she you know now has towards him and that's really been building for a while so you know let's be fair but we learned that there's a network of these farms that they work together i think they mentioned that one of the other ones needs help digging their well and you know they're going to help each other survive this apocalypse but we learned that paul and echo have been together for 10 years and I love the little interplay that the two of them have. He, I, I also love the fact that he throws it all out there that, you know, I've tried to have some emotional intimacy with you, but I failed. You know, you just won't let me in. Well, I let you in a few times, nice. she says, when we yeah. thought we were going to die. Yeah. And, and again, it, it wasn't gratuitous. It was just, it, it was a little piece of levity amidst all of this seriousness and sure. and i just thought it was perfectly placed yeah it was great and it, it really kind of sets which has been building throughout the series obviously the relationship between paul and echo you know like at first she's this almost talisman that he's following and then he becomes like her protector and then for a little bit they're kind of like lovers but not really uh, but certainly there's been this kind of very strong bond between them since the, you know, the, the, the pilot, right? Sure. Um, so they're really setting us up here for what happens to Paul later. And then, you know, echoes, obviously, um, her emotional reaction to that much later. Yeah. And, and again, arguably the most powerful scene in the episode. And right after this, they come to the realization that they've got to get back to the dollhouse. They arrive there in Anthony's tractor trailer rig. Yeah. And like, they totally meet, Mad Max, right? His whole crew. Oh, no yeah. question. And And they meet resistance. And I love how the metal music just gives way to this plaintive string section as the fighting's going on because it's so not what we're used to experiencing in in these kinds of scenes. Most of the time, the metal music would just get louder and more frenetic, but no, it's this string section and it's just, oh, it was just chilling. And 
once uh now now of course this is where mag gets shot in the legs and then we're just shocked as ballard takes a bullet to the forehead and he's dead yeah and and the reaction on echo's part is i guess what we would expect out of a soldier a veteran soldier in war just move on he's dead let's go right right um one of the most shocking things i think i've ever seen in television ever like without a doubt like it still brings back the very first time that i saw that and i was just like you know it's not like some big dramatic death he doesn't get like a final speech he just goes to help a girl and the bullet catches him in the head and he's done yeah you know and it's just like you're just like wtf like there's no way there's no way paul is definitely not dead there's no way paul's dead and you're like he just got shot in the head so he's he's totally dead like it's like it's still i mean it was what like eight years ago when i saw it for the first time and like just as that scene was progressing i'm like oh my god this is it this is it this is it this is this is so traumatic you know like it was just how how they did him it just and it, it, artistically it's it's amazing you know but right but it's uh, and, so and, and upsetting and look at what they do next. They rappel into the dollhouse and they see that not only are the lights on and everything's functioning, but there are dolls walking around as usual and they react the way we do. It's like, what the hell? And then who do we see? <laughs> Alpha is running things. So we go from that shock of Paul's death to the fact that Alpha is now running things and Echo hugs him. They're hugging like, him. Oh, oh, he's a good guy now. Yeah. Well, we, we got a little bit of that. So we shouldn't be totally surprised because in Epitaph 1, they did mention how they were working with Alpha. So we 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 knew that, that they were allies. But that still makes it completely shocking because the last time we saw Alpha... He was killing Paul. And so now for Victor to hug him and Echo to hug him, and we're just like, like, what? (laughs) Well, yeah, and you can see he's truly saddened by the news of Paul's death. Right. And while I feel as if it saddens him on that personal level, I wonder if it's that he feels bad for Echo. I mean, I, I certainly feel he does because he's been close to her and and granted it's been a weird relationship there as well yeah to say the least right now topher echo and adele are looking for the tech that topher needs and that's when some of anthony's team turns on them afraid that the people they've made themselves into will disappear when topher returns the world to its original state you know on the one hand i get it Mm. i understand the one of them says we want to be able to rule the wasteland. And again, it's that, that Mad Max illusion that you mentioned earlier in sure. the discussion. But, you know, there's just something I, I, that's with so you. short-sighted. This is, this is the scene I could do without. Because you're right. Like, these people are working for the restoration of humanity. All of a sudden now, he's like, no, we want things to be as they are. Like, well, but I, like, it gives no. Victor, I mean, I mean, it gives Anthony 
right. a chance to either step up or not. Exactly. And that's that's what it's there for. So Anthony has a chance to rip the the thumb drives. So, like thumb drives. Isn't that cute? Uh, <laughs> to, to rip them off his neck and throw them on the ground dramatically saying, I am not going to be that guy anymore. You know, like I reject the tech. Um, you know, so that's, that's what it's there for. But it, it just... Even watching it now, I'm just like, come on. Uh, I know. But again, even when Kilo, played by Marissa Tantrone, is taken down and she's on the ground. I don't know if she got shot as well. She's looking up at Echo. She's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I, wrote I her, mean, it, sister. So, what? you know, like, you know, like that works on so many levels. You know, like it works as like the character Kilo saying it. But you can just see Marissa as the writer, as the person who's done actually – a ton of work in creating this character kind of like admiring her own sculpture, you know? Well, it, it reminds me of the admiration we see in agents of shield that Ruby has for quake. You know, she's got the quake poster on her wall, if you right. recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but then there's another great scene as zone says goodbye to mag and has acknowledged that he's going to take the tiny Messiah with him since she'll soon be a little girl. And it's a, this side that we've never seen of zone. And then when they ask each other, well, what did you do before? And he turned out to have been a landscape architect. And she says, well, I didn't see that one. Of course not. Neither did we, but there is a human being inside there. You know, right. Well, that, yeah, that. exactly. Like these people were other things before the world went completely to crap. Right. So, you know, to, you know, why not? landscape architecture you know right now we find out that alpha is left because he was afraid of what the pulse might turn him into but echo's confident that he's evolved and i guess we'll take her at but he her could, word like the thing is he could just stay down in the dollhouse with echo right well sure so that, that right. was I mean, the part that to... like confused me how like they said he went off on his own because he's not sure what's going to happen like well, he could stay. Well, I, I guess. I guess also the thing is, is he's finding it so hard a struggle to be who he is. I think as well, right? Well, sure. And I mean, it's something that Echo has been battling for a while now. That not that he hasn't been, but it, certainly right. she's achieved a level of success that perhaps he hasn't. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, you know, Alpha has you know always like really. Like from what we've seen of him, he's been very violent and everything. And you know how he keeps saying this is a place of peace. He's so adamant. It's almost like like an alcoholic staying away from a bar. Like no, no alcohol in here. No, no, we can't have it. Get that out of you know. Like like he can't even be around like the idea of violence without him like kind of relapsing to what he was before. So maybe that's it. You know, maybe he because. I mean, let's face it. I mean, he could just stay down in the dollhouse, wait out a year, and go back up, and he's good to go, right? But he's decided to go out there. So that, to me, that says he wants to get rid of all this stuff in his head. Okay. And, and his parting words are dismantle the tech, start with the chair, which is, of course, not what happens. Echo goes to the chair, finds an envelope with her name and a wedge. She uploads it, and apparently, and here's where I'm 
a little bit unsure. Is this Paul's wedge? Does she upload yes. his consciousness or yes. is it the memories of him? Uh, it's Paul's wedge. Okay. So Paul so is now, now another of the people inside your head. Okay. So she assimilates him into her being. Okay. Yeah. And that's really what, if, if you forced me to choose, that would have been the way I'd, I'd go. We see that image of Priya, Tony, and T having reconciled. And, and that's the third story we're going to talk about that, that really is addressed in this episode, the reconciliation of those two. And they're reading together like a family. Mags in a wheelchair. Echo finds her sleep chamber and goes to sleep. And I'm wondering whether this reinforces her feeling that she's alone as she contends or does it simply provide comfort knowing that she's part of a group once again and that there's this familiarity that right now is something that she needs? Yeah, I think it's just kind of like it was a really nice little thing that the writers did to kind of call back to the origins of the show, Echo. Because we really, Echo hasn't been in that sleep chamber, I don't think, really at all in season two, right? Not that we've seen. Right, so her going back in there is kind of like a big thing, and just recalls you know what she, where she was before. Um, but if I had to add what you said, I, I would tend to go with the idea of something that's just like a comfort to her, right? Like she's yeah. just been through a lot. You know, she's just saved the world. What are you going to do? Well, you know, I could really use a nap right now. Uh, I go back to my comfy little sleep place and and hang out there. So, all right, and, and that's a great transition into the next story, which is Topher's redemption. And you know, we we see this seriously affected Topher working for Neuropolis's leader, and we learn that for each day he fails to deliver the tech that they desire, a person is killed in front of him. So he's already a sensitive young man. Right. So to have to experience that just has to be mind-numbing and, and exactly well we saw that crushing. back in epitaph one sure how, how um you know messed up he was from what's happened and yeah you're absolutely right this this just completely adds to that and really kind of you think would would push him over but yet he's been able to maintain some level of sanity some level of uh i, I guess sanity is just where we'll go with there that he's able to, you know, devise a way to reverse everything that he's done. Right. I can bring back the world. And we're wondering, well, is he delusional or has he achieved, as you just said, a certain level of scientific competence amidst, you know, the emotional horror that he's going through? And the answer is yes, he is able to do that. Yeah. And of of course, his plan is to restore the wiped minds, put them back to their original identities and their original states. But there is a caveat. Those with active architecture would be reset to just before it all started. We'd forget everything, I believe it's Echo says, although it could have been Priya. But regardless, and that's important, we can't forget our past. We can't forget this history because... Right. What's the quote? Those that uh, you know don't pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. Right. I think that's 
more of a paraphrase of it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Topher finds his way to his sleep chamber, immediately jumps in, grabs a book, begins writing. Puts his shirt back not, on, uh, too. <laughs> yeah, not unlike Echo at episode's end. But here, rather than you know, comfort and sleep, it's almost as if, for him, it's a comfortable place for him to work at this point. Right, which basically so, they risked their lives paul lost his life so that topher could find a place he liked to work sure. you know if you put in that context you're like you know topher it'd been really awesome if you could have done these calculations back at safe haven what do you think buddy yeah now do you think watching the training video of bennett is really helping him or is it just again something that comforts him that he has on in the background as he's working arguably on the most stressful most important piece of technology he's ever worked on i tend to think that it, i think it inspires something in it, it it like you know that aha oh that's what i'm missing that that kind of serendipitous moment that's how it seemed to me that um, well, one that he obviously is completely still heartbroken about Bennett, but um, by watching that video, he seems to spark something that allows him to finish up the new pulse bomb thing. Well, you know, and it's interesting because he and Alpha are sitting there working at the workbench, and Adele's standing by watching over her boys, and I guess what I'm getting out of what you're saying here is that yes, it does inspire him because she's really the only other person that he's come into contact with that's at his intellectual level. Right. Yes. And, and whether or not she says something in the video that really does literally help him doesn't matter. It's that she sparks that creativity in him or she, you know, helps him generate that idea or, you know, solve that next problem. But I, I just love that tender scene as Adele realizes that Topher's plan includes him dying while activating the pulse. And, you know, we talked about that in, in that initial discussion. And again, it's j just like when Ballard takes the bullet to the head and then we find out that Alpha's running the dollhouse. This realization hits Adele as well as us and Alpha steps up is now a bad time to ask for a favor? And we don't know really what he wants. I, I think he really did have something to ask of Adele or maybe Topher, but I guess we're not going to know what it is. And then once he's got the technology completed, he tells Adele, I'll fix what we did to their heads. You fix what we did to the rest of the world. You've got the more difficult job, he tells her. Right. And... And she reminds him he doesn't have to do it alone. But like I said at the beginning, I think he does. I think he does have to do this alone. Yeah, well, absolutely. And though, I mean, there could be a case made that Adele is equally as culpable as Topher for what's happened. So had she gone up there to be with him and to also be killed by the bomb would would, would work as well. But, you know, you're right. It This is, especially Topher has taken it to that so much of the responsibility is on his head that it's really caused him to you know kind of lose his sanity you know basically so 
you know, this is him kind of feeling like he's you know making up for for everything he's done, his penance for what he's done, though, you know, as any good Catholic would say, really what his penance should be is to get out there and do good works and to he should be you know, instead of killing himself and taking that way out, really it probably, as he said, the, what the harder thing would be to do, he's still taking the easy way out, really. He even admits it himself, right? That the, the well, easy he, thing is to kill yourself. The harder thing is to survive and to go and try and help get the world back after this happens. Right. And, I mean, it's in, totally fitting that he sets the pulse bomb up in Adele's office. Granted, it is the high point in the building, but... After he sets it up, he notices the remember photo board, and then all of a sudden the bomb just goes off. I, I guess I was expecting him to physically trigger it, and maybe he did, which yeah, he did. He started it, and it just like I guess it had a couple moments before it actually kicked in. At which point I was thinking, well, why not make a run for it, Topher? At, at that point, you know, if it's instead of just look at the board, you know, try try to survive a little bit, you know. Now, the third storyline in the episode revolves around Tony and Priya's reconciliation. And, you know, we've already mentioned a little bit about his Mad Max type group. And initially, we're alerted to them when the perimeter alarms go off. This group of thugs roll up in a big rig, but it turns out to be Anthony and his crew. And initially, he's speaking what I assume is Russian. Yeah, and then. Didn't, I didn't know. It sounded sound like Russia, right. but what do I know? Right. right. And it appears he has tech implanted that he just adjusts and he's now speaking English. But like Alpha and the realization that, oh, he's a good guy, Victor's there to help. And, and his group of you know, what we called thugs a, a second ago, well, okay, tech heads, freak show which uh, I forget who yeah. uses that I believe term. Priya used all of those. Right. But uh, initially we learn that the two of them have been apart for quite some time. We learn that three it's years, been three, I think. Yeah. Well, three years since he's been here. Right. Um, obviously their son is, I mean, he's got to be, well, uh, you're probably a much better judge of age than I am. What do you think? Yeah. Seven? Uh, yeah. It looked like getting upwards to 10, maybe like, between eight and ten, I'd say. Right. But clearly she does not approve of his violent methods because, as he says, he's not going to wait around for somebody to punch him. He's going to go on the offensive. And again, there's there's a certain uh, amount of truth to sure. that kind of an approach. So you, you understand. So there's probably but, what he doesn't say is like, you know, like this little this place you have here couldn't happen if i weren't out there which it seems to me that's something he could have said you know you need someone to protect this place you know we can't just stay here and sing kumbaya because you know that's not that's not how the world works right and the the contrast of that scene where young anthony is sitting at the knee of one of the members of his team who's obviously fond of little T and he comes up really livid, no tech in front of the kid. And this is a group that really is all about body modifications. 
okay, I guess on the one hand, you know, do as I say, not as I do, which, okay, it's probably a, it's probably a tough sell for a parent and a Well, the kid doesn't know he's his dad, though, right? Well, so. of course, exactly, at, at, right at this point. But the tractor trailer's in motion. Everybody's aboard. Zone learns from Anthony's weapons expert that she uploads a skill set as needed. And I love this scene because she says, when you want to upload a skill, you've got to take something out because only Echo can store them all at once. And he says, well, what did you take out? And she holds up the thing that says mercy. Yeah. I love it. Yep. I, actually, I thought it was going to say empathy, but yeah. same thing. Yeah. Well, that might be a, a little bit much to get on a thumb drive. Uh, good point. <laughs> now, we see that conversation where Tony and Priya talk about how they arrived at this point and that he hasn't seen his son or her in three years. And she's upset, understandably, that she's got to leave the home that they made away from this madness. And, and she contends he's been seduced by the technology, which is apparently what drove him apart. Right. Of course, he uses the reasoning, I did it to keep you safe. And right. there's truth in that. Sure. But then she claims she's given up the fight. And this is what I was getting at at the beginning of the podcast. She says she's given up the fight. And I argue that's not true. By building the life that you've built, you're fighting back in your own way. And, and it's just as important as the fight that Tony's taking. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, truth be told, it's going to be people like her that are the key to the rebuilding process. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, if, like the other people who know how to like grow stuff, but yeah. Right. And then the scene that we alluded just briefly to that I think is the most emotional scene in the episode, Echo finds Priya smashing wedges and tech in response to Victor taking the path he's taken. And her diatribe, if you will, begins by rebuking Priya for not realizing that he's always loved you no matter what they did to him. And as her anger escalates, we realize that she's talking about herself right? and her relationship with Paul. I never told him I'm all alone. I'm always alone. And, and this is an echo that we just have never seen. Absolutely. Well, to be vulnerable in any way at all, we've definitely not seen her like that. And that, that real super, super deep, tragic, sense of pathos we get from here she shows very little reaction when paul dies because as we both agreed she's acting like a soldier let's get out of here okay he's dead there's nothing we can do for it let's move on but now we see all the regret she's built up which again also paul alluded to earlier how you never let me in that we see that while she was kind of keeping paul at arm's length um she really did love him, but she never had the time to, to tell her. And so she's basically starts going off on Priya because your, your guy is still here and you're going to push him away despite what he's done, despite that he's rejected all the tech and everything. You're still going to push him away. Whereas really life is so fleeting, you know, and, and it's like, she doesn't necessarily realize that until, right now that she realized that how quickly things can change and how 
a person you had probably intended at some point to say, I love you. We should spend the, some time together and, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's get into each other and everything. But she just never had the time or never took that chance to do that. And now she's unable to. And that's really, right. and, really sad. And, well, and it makes the scene that follows just so beautiful as Victor sitting in front of a bonfire, burning his flash drives containing the various skill sets and Priya and their son approach. And she says, I'd like you to meet your father. And little T asks immediately if he can help his dad burn stuff. Clearly echoes reaction impacts Priya that whole, again, as you just were saying that sees the day mentality because you might not have tomorrow. And certainly in an apocalyptic world like the one they live in, you know, no, you know, words would ring more true. So uh, I just really love the way they end each of these stories. And uh, again, I mean, uh, not to beat a dead horse, but that we don't get to see more is just criminal. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. And and that's, that's the thing, you know, like, when you get down to it, I mean, this was such a well-crafted ending to the series and they really did an incredible job on it because series endings are are tough, right? Especially when you know the series is going to end. Sometimes they pull it off. Sometimes not so much. It's, It's tough when you had, you were planning on telling a lot more story and having more time to tell it. And now you don't. So now you have, 43 minutes to do what you had hoped to do over a number of seasons you know it's it's tough so while like the whole pulse bomb thing like Topher just saying oh by the way i know how to save the world awesome let's go save the world boom world saved awesome you know like it's it's a bit much to swallow like plot wise um but on the other hand like what else are they going to do you know but what I think that the the really important thing then to hold on to here is like how they emotionally tied this show up and how they kind of touched base with all the characters, uh, all the main characters that were in it, and um, you know gave us closure on all of them. Yeah, and, and again, I don't know how they could have done anything better. And as I was finalizing my notes this afternoon, I thought, do I regret giving last week's episode an A plus? Because to give that episode the same grade that I want to give Epitaph 2 seems somewhat unfair, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it for now. But anything <laughs> well, that, else you that's, want to that's add? That's what I said. I'm, I'm hold, I, I reserved my A-plus from last week. I know, week. and you were probably right. I, but uh, anything I, else you want to add for uh, this one? I don't think so. No. It was, uh, okay. yeah, great, great okay. episode. Yeah, Awesome. So, all yeah. right. All right. Now, before we get to Fred's audio feedback, he wanted us to read a little bit of a disclaimer and let you guys know that he had not listened to our Hollow Men podcast when he recorded his feedback for Epitaph 2. And I'll just leave it at that. And I, I know what he's getting at, but let's take a listen to what Fred has to say about Epitaph 2. Hello Dave and Wayne, this is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback on Dollhouse Season 2, Episode 13, called Epitaph 2. The Season 2 finale, as well as the series finale. 
First off, I'm happy to be back at home from my trip to Italy. So I can use my regular microphone again instead of the one of my laptop. But okay, the alternative would have been no feedback at all. Nevertheless, I apologized for last week's audio quality. Epitaph 2 Because I never had seen Epitaph 2, I was wondering whether this episode would follow the last episode of Season 2, Hollow Man, or it would follow Epitaph 1. If it would have followed Hollow Man, uh, it could have been a kind of an alternative timeline uh, for Epitaph 1. But it didn't. It was a follow-up on Epitaph 1. Actually, the whole construction of having an episode at the end of Season 1 that plays in the future of the entire Season 2 is quite unique. I have a question for you. Uh, The both of you have seen so many uh, more series than I did. Did you ever encounter such a construction before? Uh, Before Dollhouse or as a kind of a copycat after Dollhouse? I don't know one. In the beginning I found the whole Epitaph 1 construction a little confusing, but now, having seen season 2, it was very special. During our discussions about several season 2 episodes, especially the last 5 or so, uh, we were constantly referring to how things could pinpoint into the Epitaph 1 direction. Um, At that time we were, or at least I was, not 100% sure whether Epitaph 1 was THE future or A possible future. Um, I don't like spoilers, uh, and you could think that the Epitaph 1 construction could be quite annoying, but it wasn't. Very cleverly done. A big compliment to Joss Whedon. Um, Would I like to see this more often? Well, probably not. It It should stay quite unique to this show. Of course, the construction was not planned as such from the beginning. Epitaph 1 and 2 were made as a safeguard if respectively Season 1 or Season 2 would not get a renewal. With Epitaph 1, Whedon succeeded in closing up something that was... Or with Epitaph 2, Whedon succeeded in closing up something that was cancelled just in a different way than with Firefly and the movie Serenity. I just watched the two and a half hour closure of the Sense8 series, um, which was also cancelled after two seasons, mainly because of sky-high production costs. Um, What I find very clever of that uh, Epitaph 1 setup, uh, that it's set up in such a way that a second season still would be possible and it caused a unique situation of having a second season with a few on the future as well. Okay, into the episode. It was quite shocking to see a little Caroline hit a, a butcher with a stick in the opening scene. On the other hand, you immediately get into the atmosphere of the 2020 world. But there is still some hope left, little Caroline says. We are lost not gone. A funny concept I find is that Harding's new suit, because he became too fat, is not a new suit, but a new body. I could use that. One quote I liked uh, in the beginning of the episode, Tover, so close to solve both problems, they would have no idea. 
Echo, close to what? Wiping everyone? Tover, the opposite. Reflection, like an echo. Put things back the way they were. Minds back the way they were. Sometimes it's not clear if it's my opinion or a next line in a quote. Uh, of course I'm referring to the use of the word echo here. What also was nice was a nice contrast to see Adele harvesting strawberries, strawberries instead of being the corporate bitch. Although we see the old Adele back just a few moments later. Ballad says, the point is, Tova thinks he can flip it, create a pulse to restore all the white minds. And Zone says, yeah, he also thinks he is a little teapot, short and stout. And then Adele says, Tova Brink is a genius and you will keep a civil tongue in, the, in this house or we will put it in the stew. And then little Caroline says, good to see you have mellowed. What I didn't understand is why they waited so long uh, to tell T, he must be eight or so, that Tony, aka Victor, is his father. I understand they wanted to keep him away from the tech. Victor thinks he has to use, but still. Victor obviously visited the farm three years ago for the last time. I think the heaviest and most meaningful conversation of this episode, especially when you know that Ballard, Ballard will die, Ballard says to Echo, I've been knocking ten years and you still won't let me in. And Echo says, I have let you in a few times, Ballard, when you were sure we were gonna die. What happens if you're, if you're sure we're gonna live? And Echo says, what do you think happens? Ballard, I think you have got hundred people living inside your head and you're the loneliest person I know. Echo says, that's a kind of sweet. And Ballard, not for the person who is with you. Actually, I don't fully understand um, Echo's reaction here. Uh, when she says, that's a kind of sweet. I mainly found it a kind of sad. It's nice that the series got a closure with Epitaph 2. Dear David Wayne, thank you so much for this dollhouse journey. As I said in my episode 3 feedback some time ago, I got stuck in season at season 2, episode 6, and picked the series up because of your podcast. Halfway season 2, I got a little untouched by the series, lost my enthusiasm for it. I found the quality of the storylines becoming less and less. Now, after rewatching the first six episodes and seeing the rest of season two, I cannot imagine how I ever could have thought that. I highly appreciate the show now. I also was a bit annoyed by the acting of Eliza Dushku and Frank Kranz. Um, both I thought a bit over the top although in different ways. I don't think that anymore. I appreciate Eliza Dushko much more now, especially uh, the way she plays all those different personalities within one person. Of course, nothing can top Tatiana Maslany for me, um, but not bad, Eliza, not bad at all. If you really understand the character of Tover Brink, then the appreciation for what Fran Kranz does becomes much higher. And this especially is made clear when Envergokjai is playing Tover. Also a very nice performance, by the way. 
So, Dave and Wayne, thank you for this journey. Looking forward to another travel experience, uh, namely uh, Travelers Season 3. Uh, do you already know when that will start? Last quote. You don't have to do it, you know, at least not alone. I do. I'll fix what we did to their heads. You fix what we did to the rest of the world. And then Tova whispers, your job is way harder. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. All right, now, you know, Wayne, I know I've said, and I don't know if you remember this, but that I'd recommend watching Epitaph 1 and Epitaph 2 after completing both seasons. But as I got to the end of it this time, I'm thinking, that's crazy. Leave it the way it is. Season one, epitaph one, season two, epitaph two. It's certainly got a bit of a Westworld feel to it. Sure. And Fred asks whether or not this type of structure has ever been done before. I'm not sure. I mean, you certainly mentioned at the top of the show about the special circumstances surrounding season one and the fact that they weren't sure if they were canceled or not. And the fact that they needed a 13th episode for international distribution, and they ended up filming this one with a separate crew. Actually, it was the crew from the show 24 <laughs> that they filmed right. Epitaph 1. And, and of course, outside of Echo and Paul, it's mostly non-main cast characters. Right. So you know, It's like yeah, uh, Zoda and Mag almost the whole time, right? Right. So to answer your question, Fred, I don't know, but um, yeah, you know, well, I, I, I really don't think so because again, remember that they, it was like a, a, an extra kind of bonus to buy the DVD set, which is, you know, that that's how Firefly found its second life, right? Because of DVD sales. I don't think it happened quite the same way for Dollhouse, but they, they certainly at least got a, a season two out of it. So, you know, those people who didn't buy the DVD or, you know, procure some kind of pirated version of Epitaph 1, which probably the, the hardcore fans of the show obviously saw Epitaph 1 before Season 2 started. But as we talked about Season 2, there's just so many times that there's so many things that happen in Season 2 that their resonance is much more, much deeper because we know what leads to we, we if you look at season two as basically building up to what we've already seen happening in Epitaph One, it kind of adds that layer of meaning to everything that we see there. So I would definitely say, you know, watch Epitaph One before season two for sure. Yeah. And I can neither confirm nor deny that I may or may not have used a method uh <laughs> less than above board to watch epitaph one since at the time i didn't own the dvd set which i got you now i own both seasons but uh so you mean you borrowed the dvd from someone and you never returned it right that's yeah that's it (laughs) now uh fred mentions the gardening scene with adele which is certainly one of my favorites from the episode as well because as he says it's such a contrast to the woman we've seen in the corporate world setting of the dollhouse and the Rossum corporation. So it's just, yeah, it's just really wonderful. Now I don't like the way Priya and Tony 
keep the truth from their son, but I understand it. These are unusual times, but I guess the child suffers because of the problems the parents are having. And while there does seem to be a happy ending here, Fred, I, I get what you're saying. And, and I, I, I agree with you. Uh, now, he also asks about travelers. And obviously, uh, if you've gone to actually our website, I, I've put up there. It's been there for a while now. Sci-Fi TV Rewatch a traveler's podcast because I guess I feel like at our heart we had become a traveler's podcast and a the librarian's podcast. Right. Now that the librarians is well, done. Is no more. Right. Because we want people to be able to find our podcast when they're searching. So even though we're going to cover all sorts of other shows and and topics we're going to leave it at that but fred there's still no word on the release my guess is it's going to be late november early december and since it is netflix we're going to get it all at once but we'll talk about how we're going to handle that when we get much closer so fred thank you glad your trip to italy worked out well glad to have you back and we are going to talk about reverie next time which i know you're psyched for so uh i guess we'll leave it there yeah and sounds like a a great place to leave it all right so that's going to do it for this episode of sci-fi tv rewatch we want to thank you for joining us love to hear what you think about anything going on in genre television encourage you to join the facebook group share your thoughts with the sci-fi tv rewatch community and if you're already a member spread the word emails as always can go to sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com voicemails via speak pipe which you can get on the website and we'll be back next time to talk about the series premiere of reverie titled apertus but until then you know what dave you will keep a civil tongue in this house and we'll put it in the stew <laughs>